I want to welcome those of you who are watching online today. Thank you for joining us for our uh, online live stream. And uh, we also have people who watch throughout the week on our website and app. And so uh, we're grateful to those of you who can't join us in person but are watching along with us and coming to learn from the Word of God. Today is an exciting day. We're starting a new sermon series this morning in the book of Ruth. And uh, it's like a fitting sermon series as we enter the holiday season. Uh, we're going to see that this book is intimately connected to the story that we celebrate at Christmas time, the arrival of the Messiah. So we're going to share more about that as we go through this series in the coming weeks. I want to share a, a quick story with you, though, as we begin this morning. My father, when he was 20 years old, spent uh, a year studying in Israel. Uh, he was a student at the Institute of Holy Land Studies, where he was uh, studying biblical history and geography. Uh, over the Christmas break of that school year, uh, my father and some buddies of his took a, an adventure. They rented a couple old army jeeps and headed south into the Sinai Desert uh, with the goal of finding Mount Ararat and, and climbing Mount Ararat where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Well, what, what started out as uh, an interesting uh, biblical odyssey turned into an epic adventure as my dad and his buddies got caught literally in the middle of the largest battle between Israel and Egypt since the Six-Day War. Uh, they were not on the front lines. They were literally in the middle of the front lines as tanks and planes were fighting over their heads. Uh, their jeeps ended up breaking down. They got stranded in the desert for two weeks, uh, no food, no water. They ended up having to uh, survive by sucking the juices out of the leather in their boots and drinking the old radiator water out of their, uh, out of their jeeps uh, until they were finally rescued by the Israeli army after surviving literally uh, nearly two weeks in the midst of this uh, hostile environment with a war going on all around them. Uh, it was such an epic story. In fact, uh, my dad later on, he ended up writing the story and submitting it to Reader's Digest. Uh, Reader's Digest wrote him back and said, Ron, we would love to publish your story, but nobody would believe it. <laughs> so that might be another time I'll have to tell you the whole, uh, all the details. Uh, my dad counted over a dozen times where he should have died in that uh, two-week span, uh, but it was truly a, a miraculous uh, experience for him. My dad, though, as a result of that uh, adventure, ended up coming down with viral hepatitis, uh, probably as a result of drinking the, the dirty water. He went back to school at the end of Christmas break, at the end of this adventure, and uh, his eyes began to bulge out of their sockets, his skin turned yellow, his liver began to swell up, and, and so he went down to the hospital in Jerusalem, and the doctors immediately recognized that he had one of the worst cases of viral hepatitis that they had ever seen. He ended up spending six weeks in the hospital there in Israel, and the doctors told him, your, your situation is so severe, uh, Ron, we're going to need to send you home to America, and you're going to have to be on bed rest for up to six months because there was so much damage to his liver. Well, as you can imagine, as a young man who had his heart set on studying there in Israel for the year, my father was devastated. Not only was he struggling with the, the physical weight of this uh, infection that he had, but uh, mentally and emotionally, he was just overwhelmed. He ended up heading home to the United States to uh, live with his folks and recover from this uh, infection. 
the only thing he had to look forward to going home was to see his girlfriend again, who he had intended to propose to. He had actually bought a diamond ring in Jerusalem to bring home to his girlfriend to propose to him. Uh, when, he, when he got home, however, his girlfriend uh, informed him that she never wanted to see him again, that she had met a new guy while he was gone, and uh, my dad was just heartbroken and devastated. He ended up laying in his bed for the next few months, angry, bitter, mad at God. He didn't touch his Bible in weeks and weeks on end. One day, in a bout of frustration, my dad reached over on the bedside table next to his bed and he just grabbed his Bible and he whipped it open to the first verse he could find. And he came to Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. My dad says it was like the Lord just slapped him across the face. He said, Ron, wake up. Do you really believe that I am sovereign? Do you really believe that I'm in control of all of these things going on in your life? That nothing happens outside of my providential care and kindness. And my dad says that that experience changed his whole life, changed his whole perspective. He learned to trust God in a deeper way than ever before as a result of having to go through those trials. You know, friends, one of the fundamental truths about God that you'll find throughout Scripture, it's a fundamental truth that all of us need to learn in our Christian lives. It's a truth that's often very hard and difficult for us to learn. But one of the fundamental truths that, that all of us need to embrace as we go through our journey with Christ is the recognition that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and he providentially oversees all the circumstances of our lives. And not only is he sovereign, but in his richness and in his kindness and in his love, God is always working to bring about his good and perfect will for us. Friends, this is one of the central themes that we're going to see in the coming weeks as we study the book of Ruth. Our series is titled, The Lord, Sovereign and Kind. And as we journey through the book of Ruth together, we're going to see both of these realities. The reality that God is sovereign over history, he's sovereign over the events and circumstances of our lives, but he is also a faithful God a loving God, a good God. And even in those circumstances that we don't understand, God is faithfully at work to bring about his perfect will and purposes for us. The book of Ruth is an interesting book. It's, it's one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's only four chapters long. But it's a very powerful book full of depth and theology that all of us need to learn and embrace. Ruth is one of only two books in the whole Bible named after women. Ruth and Esther are those two books. Ruth is also one of two books in the Bible named after Gentiles, people who were not part of the Jewish family. Do you know what the other of those two books is? Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the physician who wrote Jesus' Gospel, Luke, and the book of Acts, which we studied this past year. And uh, Ruth, in her Gentile background, as we're going to see, is very important and central to the whole storyline that we're going to be studying together. But while Ruth is a short book, it is also universally recognized as one of the greatest short stories ever told. It's a story of love. 
a story of faithfulness. It's a story about a woman who was an outsider who was welcomed into God's family. It's a story of God's providential oversight of history and how God, even in the difficulties and trials of our lives, is using those circumstances to bring about his ultimate plans and purposes for us. It's a story about the Messiah and how God was preparing the world for our Savior, who we look forward to celebrating this Christmas season. So there are some powerful themes that we're going to see. Today, as we begin the book of Ruth in chapter 1, we're going to find that the book of Ruth opens in what appears to be very tragic circumstances, very desperate, dire circumstances for the family that is featured in the book of Ruth. There's a famine happening in the nation of Israel. And as a result of this famine, this family is forced to make some very desperate choices, tragic choices, as we're going to see today that led to a downward cascading spiral of cataclysmic events in their lives. And if you read just the first chapter of the book of Ruth, you might think, where is the hope? Where is God's sovereign care and faithfulness in this story? But as we're going to see in the coming weeks, chapter 1 sets up all of these themes. In fact, we're going to see many of these themes even in chapter 1 in the midst of this very dire situation in the midst of the famine that we see today. The, the central question that we're going to ask this morning as we begin our series is simply this. How are we to live our own lives in the midst of our famines, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our hurts and pains and difficult circumstances that each and every one of us will face? You know, sometimes what we see as tragedies, friends, are really God's triumphs. And we're going to see this very clearly in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is going to help us to hold fast to this divine perspective. So this morning, I want us to think about this question, how shall we live in the midst of the famines of our own lives? This morning, I want to make three observations about our story, about this first chapter. The first of these observations, and we're going to read here in verses 1 through 5, we see at the outset of this story a famine that led to a fateful decision. A famine leading to a fateful decision. If you have your Bibles, we're in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verses 1 through 5. Let me read this for us, and then I want to comment about what's happening here in our story this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malone and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech and his husband, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malone and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. A famine leading to a fateful decision. Our story begins this morning on an ominous note. In verse 1 we read, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
Now, any Israelite reading that opening verse would have immediately recognized that the author of Ruth was talking about a very desperate period in Israel's history. The time of the judges took place about 200 years before the the time of the monarchy of King Saul and David and Solomon. We're talking about the period of around 1200 to 10,000 or 1000 B.C., And it was a period of spiritual chaos in the nation of Israel. It was a period of rebellion against God and temporary periods of return and repentance and yet repeated cycles of the nation of Israel falling into rebellion and sin. In fact, the book of Judges, which describes this period, this 200-year period of Israel's history, at the end of the book of Judges, in Judges 21-25, we read this description. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, this was a fitting description of what was taking place in the land of Israel when the story of Ruth takes place. It was a period of rebellion against God, a period of moral and spiritual chaos. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 goes on and tells us not only did this take place in the days when the judges ruled, but there was a famine in the land. Now please understand this, friends. This is more than just an agricultural or environmental observation here. The author of Ruth is actually making a profound theological statement for us. You see, a famine in the land was a sign that Israel was currently under one of God's covenantal curses. If you recall, in the story of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land, God made a covenant with the Israelites. God said to the Israelites, if you will remain faithful to me, I will remain faithful to you, and I will bless you, and you will prosper But if you sin against me and rebel against me, I will remove my hand of blessing. And you will experience my discipline, my judgment. And so when Ruth tells us here in verse 1 that there was a famine in the land, any reader in Israel at the time would have recognized that this was a description that Israel at this time was under God's judgment. They were facing one of his covenantal curses. In fact, in Leviticus 26, 18 through 20, we read this. God says, and if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. I will make the heavens like iron. In other words, I'm going to shut the skies off so there will be no more rain. I will make... The heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. In other words, you're not going to be able to plow. You're not going to be able to plant and harvest. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. God said, look it, if you rebel against me, you will experience my divine judgment. See, it's important that we recognize what's happening here with this famine at the outside of the book of Ruth. God had brought this famine upon his people as a loving act of discipline. How is this loving? God bringing this famine upon the land. Well, friends, you need to understand this. Discipline from God is always then rebe- better for us than rebellion against him. 
Like any parent knows, when you have a wayward child, you sometimes discipline that child to correct them and bring them back into the right way to live. And so God sometimes does the very same thing with his people. This famine was a stark reminder to Israel that they had strayed from the Lord. And it was God's wake-up call to Israel to spur them on to repentance and obedience. See, friends, sometimes the famines in our lives are really God's means of loving, fatherly correction. Did you know that? It's true. Sometimes God brings trials into our lives to discipline us, to correct us. Now, listen, it isn't necessarily the case that every trial we face in life is an example of God's discipline. But it can be. This is biblical truth. Look at what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, friends, even in the New Testament, we find this principle that God will sometimes allow discipline in our lives to rebuke us, to train us, to get us back to walking faithfully in his ways. And so, friends, when we're in the midst of the trials of our own lives, One of our first responses should be to examine our hearts. We need to examine our hearts and we need to seek the Lord in prayer and in his word. We need to ask God, Lord, is this trial in my life a result of your discipline trying to rebuke and correct me? And so we seek the Lord in prayer, but we also go to his word, and based on his word, we examine our lives. And we say, Lord, am I living outside of your will today? Have I rebelled against what you've revealed in your word? Because if we find that we're living in rebellion against the Lord, friends, you can expect that like a loving parent, God may be engaged in a period of discipline in your life to bring you back into repentance. And if you find that's the case, the only appropriate response is to humble yourselves, to humble yourselves under that discipline, under that correction, and to then repent and pursue walking in faithfulness and righteousness with the Lord. So this is where we find this family, the family of Elimelech. And it's at this point in our story where the story today goes from bad to worse. You see, as I just noted, in times of famine, in these times of spiritual discipline from the Lord, we have a choice, friends. We can choose flight or faith. We can either run from God or we can return to God. And here is where Elimelech led his family down a disastrous course. I call this Elimelech's Moab mistake. And what a mistake it was, friends. This man led his family into dire circumstances with tragic consequences. Where did Elimelech go wrong? Well, first of all, he failed to heed the covenantal warnings of God's word. 
He forgot what God had clearly taught the people of Israel. That famine was a sign of God's judgment. And instead of recognizing what God's word clearly said and seeking the Lord in repentance and obedience, Elimelech ran from the famine. He fled from God. And so Elimelech abandoned God's people. And he abandoned the promised land that God had said he was going to bestow his blessings on. Not only that, he moved his family to Moab, a foreign land 50 miles east of Israel. A foreign land which was the ancestral enemies of Israel. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, God told the Israelites, don't allow a Moabite into the camp of Israel for 10 generations because of their wickedness and their evil against God's people. 10 generations, that's, that's roughly a 1,000 years. God said, look it, I don't want any Moabite a part of this family for 10,000 years because of their evil deeds. The Moabites worshipped a demonic god named Chemosh. He was the god of war and human sacrifice. And here Elimelech took his family into the heart of this demonic territory. Ruth tells us that this family's sojourn, a temporary travel, turned into a 10-year stay. Not only that, but Elimelech's sons ended up marrying pagan wives in direct violation of God's law. So now they're married to pagan women who worshipped a pagan demonic god, living in a pagan land surrounded by wickedness and evil. Friends, how in the world do you think Elimelech is going to experience God's blessing in this kind of environment? What a fateful, disastrous decision. The sojourn that was meant to bring life ultimately claimed the lives of three quarters of this family. Proverbs 14, 12, which we looked at last week, tells us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, friends, the reality is you'll never experience blessing outside of God's will. You stray from the Lord's will, it will never lead to blessing. Because God's hand of judgment will come down upon you. He will remove his blessing from you. Warren Wearsby, the great Bible commentator, he said this about this passage. Better to starve in the will of God than to eat the enemy's bread. What a profound statement. Better to starve in the will of God than to eat the enemy's bread. Friends, let me ask you this morning how tempting it is. How tempting can it be to turn to the enemy's bread in times of trouble? Instead of looking to the Lord, we so often look for comfort and joy in the idols of this world. We turn to false idols like alcohol, pornography, shopping sprees, all for hope, for peace, for joy, for security. But tragically, friends, what you'll discover is that the enemy's bread never truly satisfies In fact, as Elimelech and his family discovered, the enemy's bread is always laced with poison. One theory about the authorship of the book of Ruth is that Ruth was authored by King Solomon. It's an interesting theory. I found it especially interesting coming off of our series in the book of Ecclesiastes where King Solomon concluded the book of Ecclesiastes with this powerful 
declaration in Ecclesiastes 12:13, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You know, as I thought about the possibility that it, Solomon was the author of the book of Ruth, I started to wonder if Solomon had Elimelech in mind those many times in Ecclesiastes when he spoke of the fool, the fool who turns his back on God and does life the way he thinks is best. Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments. Friends, Elimelech's fateful decision should serve as a stark reminder to all of us. You will never experience blessing living outside the will of God. Second observation we find in our passage this morning, we see a failure resulting in forfeit, fidelity, and frustration. This family's left with three women, Naomi, the wife, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. We see three women here, but three very different responses to the crisis in front of them. Let's read verses 6 through 21 together. So Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they might become your husbands? Here she's talking about the Israelite custom of leveret marriage, which which was a custom where if a husband died, his brother would take his brother's wife as his own to provide a home and a family for her. But Naomi's saying, look it, I don't have any other sons. Turn back, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband, even if I should have hope, even if I should have a husband this night. And should I bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Here, in our second observation in the story, we see Elimelech's failure resulting in forfeit, fidelity, and frustration. 
Three women with three very different responses to the crisis in front of them. You look at the story of Orpah, for example, one of the Moabite daughters-in-law. Orpah, sadly, is a story of forfeit. A woman who forfeited her opportunity to follow the ways of the God of Israel. A woman who married into a Hebrew family headed back to the promised land. And yet Orpah, who began to follow, ultimately turned back because the lure of Moab was too strong. How many people do we know in our own lives just like Orpah? People who start on the journey of walking with the Lord and yet sadly choose to turn back and go their own way. The Puritan pastor Matthew Mead, he once said this, he said, there are many, very many in the world that are almost and yet but almost Christians. Many that are near heaven and yet are never the nearer. Many that are within a little salvation and yet shall never enjoy the least salvation. They are within the sight of heaven and yet shall never have the sight of God. How sad, friends. People who start the journey of faith and then turn around because the lure of the world is too strong. This was Orpah. Orpah reminds me of the parable of the seeds and the sower that Jesus told in Matthew 13, verses 5 through 6. Jesus said other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Friends, this is Orpah. This is the story of a false convert a story of a woman who began to walk with God and yet tragically turned away and did not follow him. We need to let Orpah's story be a word of caution to us today. I want to encourage you, friends, search your hearts. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Are you near to turning back to Moab? Have you tasted the truth but not fully embraced it? Is your heart wavering today in your walk with Christ? Friends, don't forfeit the opportunity that you've been given. We then look at Ruth and her response to this crisis. And in Ruth, we see a story of fidelity. Ruth clings to Naomi. Ruth doesn't just start the journey, but she tells Naomi, I will go with you all the way back to Israel. In fact, your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. Friends, why did Ruth cling to Naomi when Orpah turned back? There's only one explanation. It's that she had put her trust in the God of Israel. See, Ruth was a true convert. She was a genuine believer. We see this in verse 16 where Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. I will lodge where you lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Here Ruth is echoing the very words of God himself to Moses before the Exodus. In Exodus 6, 6 through 7, remember what God said to Moses. God said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you will be my people. And here Ruth is echoing the very words of God, declaring her faith and her commitment to walk in the ways of the God of Israel. 
See, friends, in Ruth, we see the difference between a genuine believer and the person who, like Orpah, forfeits her opportunity for salvation. See, here's the difference. When the road gets tough and the discouragements of life appear, the true believer will hold fast to faith. The false convert, on the other hand, will turn back to the world. They'll go back to Moab and the comforts of Moab. Ruth's choice reminds me of an incident with Jesus and his disciples. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, Jesus had just finished teaching a very hard lesson to his disciples. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go his way as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. How about you, friends? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Have you, like Ruth, committed your life and fidelity to him? Can you affirm, like Peter, that only Jesus has the words of eternal life? See, walking the road of fidelity to Christ isn't always easy but it is the road that leads to life. We see thirdly in our story, Naomi and her response, a story of frustration. Not frustration, but literally bitterness. Bitterness and anger towards God. Naomi's an interesting case because we see here in our passage this morning that her belief in God never truly waned. She believed that there was a God. She trusted that there was a God. We see that in verse 8 where she actually prays in the name of the God of Israel a prayer of blessing upon her daughters-in-law. But then what does she tell them? Go back to Moab. Go back to your gods. It'll be better for you in Moab. And what does she say? Why is her view of God and his nature and character so completely askew here? What does she say? Look in verse 13. She said, no, would you refrain from marrying my daughters? It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She was angry at God. She was bitter at God. In verse 20, she says to the women of Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and I came back empty. Here's this woman who recognized God's sovereignty, but not his sympathy. She saw his power, but not his pity. She believed in God's justice, but not in his joy. She had embraced a vision of God that was based on her circumstances and not on God's self-revelation. Friends, just think about this this morning. How different would Naomi's outlook have been had she looked at the truths of Scripture or had she recalled the many wonderful deeds God had done on behalf of Israel or if she had even recognized his faithfulness in the present moment, the gift that she'd been given in Ruth, the blessing of a homeland to return to, the hope of a famine that had ceased. See, understand this, friends. There's not a child of God in all of history that hasn't been touched by the hardships of life in a fallen world. And there's not a single person here today who won't experience pain and trials and tribulations and discouragement. 
And Naomi's response here should be a word of caution to all of us. I've said this to us before here on Sunday mornings, and we see it in Naomi. Friends, when you are going through the trials of life, you have a choice. You can either become bitter or you can become better. The bitter person focuses on the I. Friends, there's only two-letter difference there. The bitter person focuses on the I. Oh, woe is me. Oh, God, your hand is against me. Oh, God, I'm so empty. And they become very bitter and frustrated and angry. But the better person focuses not on the I, but on the E, which stands for Emmanuel, God with us. And remembers that there is a faithful God who sovereignly orchestrates all the events of my life. And there's nothing that happens in my life that is outside of his providential kindness and faithfulness and love. But Naomi's perspective, her view of God was completely askew. But the amazing thing about our story this morning is God wasn't done with Naomi just yet. You see, what she saw as the hand of God against her was really the hand of God at work for her. And not just for her, but for the whole world. See, friends, God was about to turn Naomi's tragedy into a triumph. Because that's who God is. He's a faithful God. Our third observation, verse 22, we see a faithful God orchestrating a future hope. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Friends, our passage ends on a foreshadowing of hope. The beginning of the barley harvest had started. In other words, the author of Ruth wants us to know that blessing was coming. We're going to see this blessing unfold in the coming weeks. What we're going to find is that God had a plan and purpose for everything that had transpired in Naomi's life. Even her husband's fateful decision had been made under the providential oversight of God. You see, God was setting the stage for the fulfillment of his promise to provide a savior for the world. Without Elimelech's flight to Moab, Ruth would have never become an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Without Ruth, the family lineage of the Messiah would have never been established. Without a Messiah, there would be no hope for salvation, no hope for the nations of the world, no hope for you and I as Gentiles. See, friends, understand this. God, throughout this whole situation, was orchestrating a future hope. Nothing in this story transpired outside of God's sovereign oversight and loving care. And I'll tell you something this morning, the same is true in your life. What are the trials in your life today? What discouragements are you facing today? A few hundred years after the story of Ruth, God shared another word of truth to the people of Israel. Through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord is truly sovereign and kind? That even in the hardships of life, he is working out his perfect will and plan for each of us. See, that's who our God is. 
And the choice that we have to make is, will we trust in him by faith, even in the midst of the trials of our lives? Or like Elimelech, will we turn and go our own way? Like Naomi, will we become bitter and resentful? Like Orpah, when the road gets tough, will we turn back to the comforts of Moab? Or will we be like Ruth, who in the midst of the crisis, in the midst of the trial, clings by faith to the creator of the universe and says, God, you will be my God. And I will trust you and I will walk with you. And where you go, I will go, believing in hope that the Lord is sovereign and kind. Friend, you can trust in our faithful God. As we're going to see in the coming weeks as this story unfolds, God's providential care unfolds in the life of this family in some incredible ways. You don't want to miss the coming weeks because the story just gets better and better. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, for this book, Lord. And this morning as we see this story of uh, a tragic circumstance in the life of this family, we also recognize that this tragedy was really your triumph that you are a sovereign God who orchestrates all the events of history, all the events of our lives for your good and sovereign purposes. And so, Lord, I pray that we will trust you. I pray that when the journey gets hard, that when the road gets hard, we will be reminded that there is a faithful God who oversees our lives, who we can hope in and look to with confidence and find that peace and assurance in you, Lord. God, I pray that each one of us here would come to know you as the Lord who is sovereign, who is faithful, who is kind. We thank you, Jesus, for that faithfulness. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Friends, if any of you would like prayer this morning, some of our elders and Stephen ministers will be here at the front of the stage. They would love to pray with you. Maybe you're going through a trial today and you need some hope. Let us pray for you this morning. Stand with me as we conclude with the benediction this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.